Well, good morning, Branch Church. Everyone here, everyone online, it's a blessing to be with you all, and happy Mother's Day. You know, I was thinking about when we were singing how God graciously intervened into my life and took me from going this direction and took me to going this direction with him. And I was thinking about how mothers are so much like that in a way, helping us go the right way into walking with the Lord and to knowing him. So, right, listen to your mothers, amen? <laughs> well, let's pray before we start. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to get to hear from you. We pray you'd be honored. We pray that you would bear fruit. And Lord, that you teach us about you and your heart and desire. For that's the most important thing is that we know you. So bless us to know you and to know you for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. I think all people desire to have things they desire to be protected. We all have things in our life that we want to be safeguarded from harm or destruction or abuse. For example, when I was in junior high, I got a new bike. Shiny, silver, had a nice dyno sticker on it. I was not about to let anybody ride that bike. Even my friends, even my closest friends, which came back to bite me later when he got a new bike. And it was like, <laughs> and as I grew up, I became a Christian and I had something I really wanted protected. It was my Bible, my NIV, pocket size, fits right in my back pocket. I would take it everywhere. I would, I would take it and I would kiss it like this. People would say, are you smelling your Bible? And I would say, no, I am. And how do you say that? No, I'm kissing my Bible. Like, it was a tangible way in which I could show God affection in which I wanted to do. And one other thing with my Bible is I didn't want anyone to put anything on top of it. To do this would just like destroy me. It's like, no. It was so disrespectful. And I know it's ridiculous and it's something I had to get over, but it, but it was so painful. You know, kids would, at Horizon, when I used to teach there, I'd find a stapler on my Bible if I turned my back. And it was hard. What do you do? I want to show them the seriousness, but I can't blow up, you know, all those kind of a thing. So, and as a parent, I've entered a whole new level of protection. Now with my kids, particularly my girls, I want to go with them everywhere and make sure no one is ever mean to them, never says nothing nasty to them, never pushes them. The little boys in the playground, I'm like, you just go away. Take your dinosaur noises over there. <laughs> Being a boy and knowing what that's like. And I know that's a little ridiculous, but the heart of a father, right? There's things you desire to be protected. Have you ever thought about the things that God desires to protect? We all have things that we want protected and safeguarded. What, what about God? What are the things he wants safeguarded from harm, from destruction, from abuse? Well, there's a lot of things. In 1 Timothy, we've seen a lot of those things. And today we're actually going to see three more as we look at chapter 5, verses 17, all the way through chapter six, verse two. We're gonna see that God desires three things to be safeguarded. One, his elders or his pastors. Two, the office of elder or pastor. And three, the attitudes of those in servant positions. I'm gonna group these into two, elders in the position, and then also servants and their attitudes. So if you have your Bible, turn with me please to 1 Timothy chapter five, beginning in verse 17. 1 Timothy five beginning in verse 17. Paul writes to Timothy and he says this. He says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Elders, aka pastors, 
from 1 Timothy 3, those who fit the qualifications in which we talked about, those first seven verses of chapter three, they work hard and they labor in the ministry to serve people and to teach the word and to govern and to rule the church. And if we go back to 1 Timothy 3, we see that the elders, which is also a pastor, uh, we, we've used the word pastor in our culture, but pastor is used this much in the Bible. It's very literally, I think elders actually use more. One of the things I wanted to look up and I didn't get a chance to this morning, but I think elders use even more. So when I say elder, think pastor. Think Chuck and I and what we're doing. And elders, two big things they do in 1 Timothy 3. They oversee, they govern, they rule the whole church and a governing for the benefit of the people. And they teach, they instruct with the doctrine that God has given through Jesus and through his apostles. Those who labor for the church, pouring out their love and their encouragement, they are worthy of double honor. Now it's interesting, he just used the word honor in chapter five, verse three, honor widows who are truly widows. We talked about it last week. And it's almost like Paul's like, and speaking of honor, also don't forget elders. What does it mean to honor them? Honor has a double reference. It speaks of respect and it speaks of compensation. You can kind of say it like this. It speaks of honor and it speaks of honorarium. God cares deeply that his elders, that his pastors are taken care of. It's a little weird that I get to stand up and tell you that, (laughs) considering it's directly about me. But that's part of the whole counsel of God is we get to talk about things we might not normally talk about. And so I'm very thankful that God cares much about me and Chuck and other leaders who stand in this position and get to minister and serve before you. By God caring so much to compensate and to bring us that kind of respect, we are safeguarded, and here's the idea, we are safeguarded from having to divide our energies. If I had to get another job and then try to do this on the side, it would not happen. I would be extremely limited. It would not be able to give my heart and my prayers and my soul to teaching and to getting into the word like God has enabled me. And I'm so thankful for Branch Church. You excel at this. Your love to Jesus has overflowed into my life and provided a living where I can not only spend my time doing this, but I can take care of my wife and my three kids. So thank you so much for the love that you show towards us at this church. Now he's gonna ground his reasoning in verse 18. He says this, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He's gonna cite the Old Testament and then the New The Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, speaks of an ox. Now, we don't have an agrarian society so much, and so these pictures are kind of weird. So I had to look it up myself. And in YouTube, you get a great video. There's a guy with piles of grain, what looks like hay, and he's got his pitchfork, and he's kind of shuffling them down, trying to get them a little more level to the ground. And then another guy's pushing ox like this, and they're stomping all over it, and they're flattening it out. In this process... God told them and told Israel in Deuteronomy, don't stop them from eating. Don't put a muzzle on the mouth of the ox so he can't get sustenance from the work in which he's doing. What's the point? God cares about animals. Isn't that great? God cares the animal would get compensated for the work in which he is doing. Don't muzzle him. Paul's saying, if God cares about animals, how much more does he care about his ministers of the gospel? In Acts chapter six, the apostles we're starting to get kind of bogged down with all these extra tasks. And so like, we need, we need servants, we need more people to help do the work of the ministry because we don't wanna be pulled away from the ministry of the word 
and prayer. And so other people rose up and they had them participate in the work. Now he also cites the New Testament. This is coming from Luke chapter 10. And here Jesus is speaking and he says, he sends out the 72, go out in pairs, go to the towns. They're going to preach the message. They're going to call for repentance. He tells them, take nothing with them. And whatever town you go to, find a home. And if they take you, stay there the whole time. Whatever they give you to eat, eat. Whatever they give you to drink, drink. And then Jesus says this, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Even Jesus cares deeply that his ministers and his servants are taken care of as they pour their heart out into his gospel message. The idea is this, God cares that his ministers are safeguarded from having to divide their energies and that they are compensated and taken care of for serving him. Praise God, I think that's a wonderful attribute of God to care for his servants and not just use and abuse them to get what he wants. No, God's not like that. God allows us in, to bring us and to participate in his good work, and we are incredibly benefited from that. Verse 19, here's another area concerning elders, pastors in which God desires to be safeguarded. He says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Again, we have Old Testament and a New Testament substantiation behind this. In Deuteronomy 19, 15, I think it is, not just one, but there must be two or three witnesses to establish a matter. New Testament, Matthew 18. Have you heard of the, the teaching of Jesus? If someone wrongs you, what do you do? You go to them and share it. If they listen, you've won your brother over. If they will not listen, what do you do? You go and take two or three more so that it may be established by two or three witnesses every matter. So Jesus cites it also in the reconciliation process. If that still doesn't work, you go tell it to the church. You bring in more people to help the reconciliation process. Now, these witnesses, from my understanding, don't have to be eyewitnesses meaning they don't have to actually be there to have seen what had happened. They can become witnesses along the way by the information that is brought in. So for example, if someone comes and says, that elder is having an extramarital affair, that's one witness. And then they wanna go to the elder and say, I believe you're having an affair. And then the elder says, I'm not, it's not true. So what do we do? We bring in more people to have witnesses. And so two or three people now become involved. And if those two or three people look here at the evidence and say, you know what? I don't see it. It's not true. What does Paul say to do? Get rid of it. Dismiss the accusation. Move forward. Why? God is safeguarding his pastors, his elders. He's safeguarding them from false accusations and from any kind of malicious intent to try to go at his leaders. It's the same thing with, uh, with jury. Chuck Allers was put on his, I think, third jury in a row. So if you want advice on how to get on a jury, <laughs> Chuck is incredible. I don't know what he does, but he's in. Jury number 10 just did this whole last week and some more in jury duty, and he was not an eyewitness to whatever the crime or issue was, but he became one in process, and it's the same idea here, I think, in this area. Now, what if the elder is found out to actually be guilty? Verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. 
if this person is found to be guilty, the witnesses are enough to believe and to show that he's guilty and he still will not repent, there's to be a public call before the church for him to acknowledge his sin and to stop. That would be quite the heavy moment, would it not? God have mercy on us. <laughs> In order that the rest may also fear. It's not necessary to humiliate this person. It's to keep holiness within the church and that the church would hear it and they would fear, as George Knight says, the consequences of sinning. I don't want to end up there. I don't want to go that direction. He says, verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. We are charged to keep these things. What are these things? Probably the last two verses at the very least. To protect elders from accusations, but also to deal with them if they are actually true. Before God who's with us, before Jesus, who's the judge of the living and the dead, before the elect angels, who are God's ministers sent to do his bidding, this is a heavy charge, keep it without a predetermined notion of guilt or innocence. In other words, be as objective as you can in dealing with the accusation in the issue that comes forward. Paul is now going to give some advice on how to avoid such a public, unfortunate disciplinary action. He says, verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. To say it positively, appoint people carefully to the position of pastor or elder. Now, there's no exact line of questioning given here of what we're to ask. There's no exact time limit on how long we're to wait, but there is to be a carefulness. There's to be a careful heart in going about it. When I was dating my wife-to-be, I went through a very careful process of meeting with her father, my father-in-law. And I had to date him before I could date her. <laughs> we went on three dates together that I can remember. About an hour and a half to two hours each, we met at a park. We sat across from each other. And he's very, um, he's very just kind of here. Not in a bad way, just very stable, very quiet. I'm more like this. And so it's interesting, you know, I'm just trying to read him and how's it going, you know, how am I doing? And he asked me a ton of questions. Not until I think the third date did he ask me anything about how I felt about her. He spent two days getting to know me, my background. He wanted to know what I thought about spiritual gifts. Have you ever doubted the deity of Christ? Uh, what do you think about women in ministry? He had a ton of questions he wanted to ask me to get to know me. And then on the third date, there was, I could feel this uneasiness for him. We worked together. And so we weren't going on dates or anything like that, but we talk and we talk on the phone. And I said, do you want me to stop talking to her on the phone? And he says, yes. So I felt good about it. I said, okay, I won't. And so I waited an entire summer to hear back. And that was painful. I'm in tears, walk around the lake like a big wimp crying. It was just, <laughs> I just want to be with you all the time. And it's all I wanted, and just really sad, really sad. My mom could testify, really sad moment for me. <laughs> but at the end of the summer in August, he's like, basically, you can come in and you can start this, you know, courting dating process with my daughter. And, and so I did. So I got in there and went to, went to work to get to know the family and them to get to know me and so forth. And 
during this process, and, and there's, a, there's more to it, um, my friends or people might look at that and go, man, that's pretty extreme carefulness. I don't know if I agree with that. And some people might go, amen, did you get on that guy? You're going to give your daughter away, like, slap this guy around. He better, he, better, he better know you can hand him over. And so the point I'm getting at is this. We all have different levels of carefulness in dating, giving a daughter away, a son away, and, a, and appointing a pastor or an elder. We'll all have different levels of carefulness. At the very least, may we appreciate one another's attempt to be careful in the process, particularly in the church, of finding leaders um, and where we're at. And we're going to have to do that at some point, find another leader. You know, I think Chuck, he's going to live till about 180, I think we figured. He's got this Moses. Greta's got him drinking this green stuff in the morning. And so he's, he's not going anywhere. But all that to say is, you know, as, as Chuck is continuing to pass off ministry and be gracious in that, we'll have to find that. And so as we prayerfully look to do that again, the hope is that we can, as a church, be careful and God would, and I believe, you know, send us just a wonderful man to, to lead in that area. And by the way, I love my father-in-law, if he ever listens to this. No, no disrespect. Um, love him. What he did was great. It was, it was really sharpening for me. And I have two daughters now, so we'll see what happens in about 20, 35 years. <laughs> so Paul has an interesting, like, all of a sudden he jumps to verse 23 and he starts talking about Timothy's stomach. It has nothing to do with the context. If you go to verse 24, it reads just fine. But it's almost like this. Keep yourself pure. Oh, by the way, speaking of purity, your stomach's a little messed up. Let's talk about it. Or speaking of purity, I don't want you to run this direction and, and start getting this wrong idea of purity. So he speaks into Timothy's life. It's a very personal note. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Timothy's sick a lot. He's got a lot of stomach problems. What's going on? I don't know. I didn't do any research about water in the first century. I can't imagine it's really well clean everywhere. I'm sure it could be easily contaminated a lot more than today would be my guess. And so whatever, for whatever reason, Paul's like, I think this will be helpful for you. Add a little bit of something else into your stomach. What's the point here? Here's what I, here's what I want to say. Don't take this verse and then all of a sudden make it a prescribed verse for your dietary health. <laughs> where now you are forcing people to drink wine, or you, are you having a little bit of wine? And, and I don't know if you're going to do that, but I'll just say it. You can have wine. That's great. You can have a little bit of wine. You could not have any. That's fine. This is a very personal note from Paul to Timothy, so let's be careful as we contextualize verses like this. Um, as, as you handle wine, if you do, obviously with a God conscience, not to be drunk. You want to be sober with it and having a health conscience in the way that's good for you and for your doctor as you see fit. See there, I'm getting it all off, so I'm not going to get in trouble here. <laughs> okay, he rolls back in verse 24. Some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment. Some people, you can see them sinning from a mile away. You don't even have to try. But those of some men will follow later. What's the point? You won't always see everyone. You got to take time to carefully get to know them. In due time, right, people's character does arise and we'll be able to see it. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. The same idea. Some people, you can see their good works from a mile away. Some, you might not see them, but if you give enough time, they'll rise up. Hey, you actually might be a great person for leadership. We never thought about it. As we've looked at the rest of chapter five here, we see that God desires 
three things to be safeguarded. And they're all, or two things, and they're connected here. Elders is pastors that they're taking care of. And also the position of eldership that is safeguarded from men who are living in unrepentant sin and they're not suitable and fit for that role. God would not desire them to be in that role. He transitions now to chapter six and he's gonna talk about servants or slaves and their attitudes. He says, let as many bond servants as are under the yoke, this is the yoke of slavery, count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Servants in the first century Rome, Paul writes to them, slaves, and he tells them, if you have an unbelieving master, you are to consider them worthy of all honor. That is a very hard statement. Can you imagine being in that kind of condition? And Paul tells you that. That's hard word, but it's a godly word. He wants them to have a proper attitude and how they relate, whether the master is worthy of it or not. But in that position, he is worthy to be honored in the way that he acts and respects and talks with this person. Why? Why would Paul say this? He tells us it's for an apologetic evangelistic reason. So the name of God and his doctrine would not be blasphemed. So that as you interact, God's name will not be slandered. As servants, we carry a name. We carry a gospel that is so much bigger than ourselves. It's God's name and his gospel. And the way we interact and live our lives has bearing on God's name and how people see him. And so Paul's ultimate concern here as he talks to Timothy, as he talks to those in this position, is that God would be honored, he'd be worshiped in our actions. That's the heart of it. Now, what about slavery? Is Paul endorsing slavery? I'm so glad you asked that. If you wait about three minutes, I'm going to answer that. Verse two, and those who have believing masters. So here's the other side. If your master is a believer, let them not despise them because they're brethren. Don't look down on them. Don't treat them as less or less important, or you can get away with it because they're a brother in Christ. Rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and they're beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Now, some people will read this and say the Bible is pro-slavery, archaic, outdated, forget the Bible. We want nothing to do with it. Paul Copen, he wrote a book called, Is God a Moral Monster? The answer is obviously no, but it's an intriguing title where he tackles things like the mass genocide of the Canaanites when God completely wipes them out we read that and go, oh, that's hard, hard to swallow. Like what's going on? And so he, he tackles topics like that. And in this book, he tackles slavery in three chapters. So he spends a lot of time in the Old and the New Testament talking about this idea of slavery in the Old Testament. And he says this, he says, most critics will take Old Testament servanthood and they will compare it with slavery in the South and think that they're the same thing. And so what he does is he goes through the Old Testament and says, they're not the same thing. And he gives three reasons here why they're not the same. And if people would have understood the Bible in the Old Testament in servanthood, and if they would have followed it, or at least the heart of God in it, slavery in the South never would have happened the way that we saw it happened. First, let's begin with a picture of slavery in the South. Frederick Douglass wrote an autobiography. He was a slave in the 
1800s. And he wrote a, he, he writes here about his first slave owner, Captain Anthony. He says this, he was a cruel man hardened by a long life of slaveholding. He would at times seem to take great pleasure in whipping a slave. I have often awakened at the dawn of day by the most heart-rending shrieks of my aunt, whom he used to tie up to a joist and whip her upon her naked back until she was literally covered with blood. No words, no tears, no prayers from his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from its bloody purpose. The louder she screamed, the harder he whipped. And where the blood ran fastest, there he whipped toughest. He would whip to make her scream, and he would whip to make her hush. And not until overcome by fatigue would he cease to swing the blood-clotted cowskin. I remember the first time I ever witnessed this horrible exhibition. I was quite a child, but I remember it well. I shall never forget it whilst I remember anything. It was the first of a long series of outrages of which I was doomed to be a witness and a participant. It struck me with an awful force. It was the blood-stained gate, the entrance to the hell of slavery through which I was about to pass. It was a most terrible spectacle. And he ends with this. He says, I wish I could commit to paper the feelings which I beheld it. That is an unfortunate picture of what slavery in the South was. Is that a biblical picture of how God talks about servanthood in the Old Testament? The answer is absolutely not. Listen to this, number one. The Old Testament was against kidnapping. Exodus 21, 16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he's found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. If they would have followed this one thing and not kidnapped people, that would have changed a lot of things. God says it again, Deuteronomy 24, verse seven. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. There was to be no kidnapping people and taking ownership of them in that way. Number two, the Old Testament was against harming servants. Exodus 21, 20, if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Paul Copen says that this word punished in the way that it's used describes death. This man will die for this. Exodus 21, verse 26 and 27, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. The picture in the South, all of those actions were completely unbiblical. Laying a hand on someone and whipping them like that, he was to let them go free immediately. To harm in that way, this man was courting death. Should have died, really. Thirdly, the Old Testament had anti-slave return regulations. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16. You shall not give back to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him, you shall not oppress him. In contrast to this, the fugitive slave law 
require that people return slaves to their masters. The Bible did not give such instruction. To follow these three things alone, the South would have been very different. To use the Bible to promote slavery is not correct at all. Isn't Bible study so much fun? The Hebrew servanthood in the Old Testament was more like this. People are coming over to colonial America and they can't afford to do it. So how do you get over? You have nothing, no possessions, no material. What do you do? You say, hey, I'll, be, I'll become your apprentice. Take me over, pay my fare and I'll serve you and I'll pay off the debt. That is more of what we're looking like in the Old Testament Hebrew servanthood. God did not institutionalize slavery, but because of poverty, God gave rules and regulations to protect those in poverty as they give themselves to people to work off a debt or to try to make something of themselves. God's heart in this is to protect people. It's not to institutionalize slavery against people. Our God cares for people. We saw he cares for widows last week. He cares for his elders and his pastors. He cares for all of us. Amen? Does the Bible promote slavery? No. Well, why didn't Paul and Peter just flat out be a little more clear in the Roman Empire, which was more like the South in slavery, and say something? Well, that's a good question. Here's my best attempt at an answer. The letters in the New Testament are written to bear theology on a specific task. So it's what we call task theology. Paul didn't write 1 Timothy and say, I'm going to give you A to Z about this. No, he's writing to a situation and is applying the truth of Jesus Christ to it. So unless the situation comes up specifically, he's not going to necessarily address it. And so Paul could have said, let's just overthrow the Roman Empire Institute of Slavery, but he didn't. Likely, and this is my estimation, likely he's maybe thinking this, Jesus is coming back anytime. Paul believed in the imminent return of Christ, anytime Christ could come back. So what does he focus on? the attitudes of his servants where they're at for the sake of the gospel instead of trying to overthrow a much bigger institution that was so, so prevalent everywhere. But the good news is that the seeds of Christianity did flourish in such a way where people rose up and took care of this horrible institution. Many, many, was it William Wilberforce? Where's John Circle? Where's my history guy? Where's my other history guy? <laughs> He's teaching a class next time. Well, if you got a history question, John Serco knows this stuff. So anyway, so bringing this all together, God has desires for things to be protected, things to be safeguarded. And the things we looked at today are his elders and his pastors, the position of elder pastor from those who would misuse it and abuse it. And he cares about our attitudes, where we're at and how we're serving. Now we're not slaves in this way, but we are servants. And so whether you have a boss, whether you serve a company or whatever situation you're in, you want to have the attitude of this, that I'm bearing the name of God, I'm carrying his gospel, and I want to represent that in a way where it can't be slandered or blasphemed because of me. But that people would go, you know, I may not like you, but I respect you. I may not like you, but you really reflect Jesus, even if I don't believe in him. But we hope that they would believe in him. And by our actions, that would just be another testimony to it. Amen. Amen. Let's take a, a moment together and we will pray and ask God's grace 
to walk in faith and to have the attitude in which he desires us to have in all things. Gracious Father, thank you that you care for us to feed us, to clothe us, to love us. And we ask, Lord, for your, your grace to have your attitude that honors you in our positions wherever we're at in life, from our homes to our jobs to our greater extended families to our church. Lord, give us your heart, your attitude. It's hard. It's not easy. The flesh can feel so strong. But Lord, we choose right now to look to your spirit. It's not by might, it's not by strength, but it's by your spirit, Lord, in which we trust your work. As Israel said in the Psalms, if it hadn't been for you, I'll paraphrase it because I can't remember it, they'd be a mess. And Lord, if it's not for you and for your grace, we are a mess. So please fill us with your spirit. And not just so we can do the right thing, but so we can honor you, the true and the living God. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.